Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Um, I'm praying that the service is an extra special blessing to you and helps you take the next step in your spiritual journey. Well, I'm Pastor Matt. If you're new here, I'm Pastor Matt Friend, the senior pastor. I've been here about three and a half years, grew up in Charleston. And my prayer today for you, if this is your first time, that we could help you become part of our circle of spiritual friends, that we could become part of your uh, circle of spiritual friends. Pastor Mike's already told you ways to do that, so let us know how we can help you get connected here. Please take your Bible or your Bible app and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to read there in just a moment. But before we do, I want to review where we are in the series. Several weeks ago, we launched a new series entitled, We Value. And we're looking at the values of our church family, our elders, our pastors, our staff. We've taken almost a year to pray through these things. What is it that motivates us to do what we do? And so this series is the result of much prayer, much discussion, many late nights with open Bibles. And we're trying to highlight the seven things that really motivate us as a church. What's been true of us as a church for 76 years? And what do we want to be even more true of us as we move forward into the future? But today we're going to talk about the value of family. And by family, I'm not referring to our biological families, as important as those are. But I'm actually talking about the family of God, our church family. And we believe that this is a big aspect of what it means to be a Christian in the New Testament, in this age. And so we're going to look at that together this morning. Please stand with me out of respect for the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. I'll read through verse 26. In the following directives, Paul says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you want to take notes today, the notes are always in your bulletin. They're on the app. The app has a new snazzy, fancy way for you to fill in all the blanks. Whatever helps you take notes, you'll see that the main point of today's message is simply this. Church is not a building to go to. It's a family to belong to. Church is not a building we go to. It's a family we 
belong to. Church at its core is about relationship. Because all believers are God's children, brothers and sisters in Christ, we share the same Heavenly Father. As broken people who have been adopted by God, we treat each other as treasured family members. We go out of our way to love, to help, to pray for each other, inspiring one another to love and good works. Now, I get to see this take place week in and week out in the life of the Bible Center family, in the places where you minister, in the stories our staff shares. You are loving one another as a family. But perhaps I see this nowhere else lived out better uh, than when somebody passes away. I have, in 17 years of pastoral ministry, I have never seen a church rally around somebody whenever they lose a loved one, like I see you, Bible Center, rally around someone. This past week, we lost a 39-year-old church member, a dear lady and follower of Jesus. And over the last few weeks, really the last several months, I have seen you rally around her family. We'll have the funeral here later this afternoon, but over the last few months, I've seen you visit the family at the Hubbard Hospice House bring food to their house for their family. One of you has been a grandpa to the 15-year-old boy whose mother just went to be with the Lord. I've watched students do a work day around the house, helping with mulch and mowing and weed eating. I've seen you bring food to the Hubbard house this past week. I've watched you visit family in their home to prepare food today for the funeral and our staff, I've seen most, so many of you working overtime this weekend to love this family. Why do we do that? Because we believe, I believe that you believe, church is not a building we go to. It's a family we belong to. But why is it so important to believe this? I've taken some time this weekend to really meditate on what are the consequences if we don't truly take this message to heart? What happens if we don't really believe that church is a family? Why is it so important to believe that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. Today's message is pretty simple, pretty straightforward. There's just four points, four reasons to believe that church is a family. Number one, why do we believe this? Well, first of all, families teach us to value love over location. It might be helpful for me to give a little background, a little context, and, and to whom Paul is writing this letter. He's writing this letter to the church at Corinth. It was a Greek city that was, the church was founded at least a decade, maybe a couple of decades after Christ. The apostle Paul was used in the founding of this church. But in the course of even just a few years, this baby church had a lot to be thankful for, but they had one glaring challenge, one glaring opportunity for improvement, and that was their disunity. This church really struggled with disunity. They were divided over their preferences, over social classes, spiritual gifts, a lot of one-upmanship. And this division was trickling down into their homes. It was affecting their marriages. It was affecting their worship services. It was evening, even affecting their communion services. And so from chapter 1 to chapter 16, a theme that emerges throughout the letter is one of unity, one of family. Paul reminds them that you are the family of God. Unity isn't something that we earn or work up to. 
It's something that is given to us as a gift the moment we believe the gospel. But even though unity isn't something that we create, it is something we must preserve. And so Paul tells this church, hey, fight for your unity. Work for your unity because love matters more than location. It was to this church that Paul writes the famous passage about love, about charity, that many of us heard at weddings or maybe even had recited at our own wedding. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all to possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, or some translations say always hopes for the best, doesn't assume the worst. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. Families teach us to value love over location. Now, many of you this week are going to take your college students off to school, or maybe some of you have, and this is your first Sunday back. I want to say my heart goes out to you. In a couple of years, it's going to be Sarah and me taking Katie off to college. I'm trying to convince uh, our kids to stay here in Charleston for the next you know, 30 years. There's no need to ever move away from school or go uh, to pursue a career, but we'll see how that works out. But many of you right now are, are hurting as you sit here in the service. And I don't know what you feel. I'm not going to pretend like I know what you feel. I can only imagine, and I don't want to imagine. But one thing I think we can agree on is this. Even though your locations change, love never fails. You're going to love those students, even if they live five miles away or 5,000 miles away. Many of your parents live in other locations, siblings. And it's a beautiful picture of the church. God values love over location. Church is not a building we go to. It's a family we belong to. Why else is it important to believe this? Number two, because healthy, secure, strong families are where we best learn to value unity amidst diversity. Healthy, secure, strong families are where we best learn to value unity amidst diversity. Now, verse 19, I'm about to read it, and I've read this like many of you hundreds of times, more than likely, since I've been a Christian. But verse 19 never jumped off the page at me like it did this week. So look at me with verse 19. Paul says, no doubt there has to be, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Let's leave that verse on the screen for a minute. The ESV translates verse 19 like this. Similarly, it says, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Here's the idea of verse 19. In God's providence over the church, 
He allows, even orchestrates diversity, differences of opinion, and even controversy in order that genuine spiritual quality of individual members may be known. That's a mouthful. I'm going to read it again. In God's providence over the church, he allows, even orchestrates diversity, differences of opinion, and even controversy in order that the genuine spiritual quality of individual believers can be known. In other words, how do we know who really is all in in the family of God? How do we know who is all in truly wanting to express the love of Christ in their church family or the big C church at large? The way we know is those who stick with it, those who lean in when times get hard, those who don't quit, but those who keep loving even when we have a difference of opinion. You see, dysfunctional families require everybody to look the same, believe the same, and act the same. Dysfunctional family members say things like this. If you don't see it and say it exactly like I see it and say it, then I'm out. I'm going to take my ball and go home. That is a sign of dysfunction and unhealth. But healthy, strong, secure families are places where we best learn to value and appreciate one another's diversity. There's much in the Bible that Christians, all Christians, are called to believe on. The Lordship of Christ, the, the, the Trinity, the, the Spirit of God, salvation being by faith alone. But there is much in the Bible that there's disagreement on. And the beauty of the church is how much we're willing to accept one another in our disagreements over matters that are not core. Now, these aren't in, the, in your notes, but I did want to highlight there's several areas where God invites us to celebrate our diversity in the body of Christ. One of those is in our spiritual gifts. If you want to jot these down in the margin or just make a mental note, one is our spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul writes, Just as a body, the one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. If you have a study Bible, your study Bible might highlight 1 Corinthians 12, and it might even have a heading that says, Unity Amidst Diversity. And this is a beautiful theme that runs throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. In other words, if you have the gift of teaching, you're going to be tempted to look out at everybody else who doesn't have the gift of teaching and consider them to be shallow. I'm just warning you. If you've got the gift of teaching, you're going to think nobody's as deep as you, nobody's as smart as you, and, and that's going to be a temptation. But God invites you to say, no, you be you, right? You can be a nerd if you want. No, I'm just kidding. You, you be you, but don't look down your nose on somebody who doesn't have your spiritual gift. Because, you see, it applies to everybody. Some of you have the spiritual gift of serving. You love to serve. You love to get your hands dirty. You, yesterday, some of you were out there at the Maker Center with hammers and nails and paintbrushes, and you love to serve. If you have that spiritual gift, you may be tempted to look down your nose on somebody who doesn't have the gift of serving. You know, you're like, well, you know, those guys are in there reading their Bibles, and the rest of us, we're spiritual. We're out here painting. And No, God says, you be you, right? You be you. And let somebody else be them. Maybe you have the spiritual gift of faith or of prayer. It'd be easy to think that everybody around you doesn't pray enough. No, God says, you be you. And if God's called you to pray, you pray even more. 
Yes, it's responsibilities we all must have, but there's diversity in the body of Christ. It's beautiful. There's the diversity, secondly, of ethnicity. Diversity of ethnicity. Listen to what heaven will be like. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Heaven, there's going to be a beauty and diversity of ethnicity. I am so thankful that we're seeing what we're seeing at Bible Center. We're beginning to see a, a diversity of ethnicity, but we don't fully reflect our region. We don't fully reflect the city of Charleston. And so as we continue to do ministry in the city of Charleston, I'm praying that we'll, on purpose, intentionally try to look a little bit more like heaven. God says in heaven, not everybody's going to look like us. Not everybody's going to think like us. Not everybody's going to come from our culture. And so God invites us as the church to pursue that, to celebrate that, to be thankful for that. There's diversity of gender. Diversity of gender. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, God is not teaching, if we know from other passages, that our maleness or femaleness doesn't matter. That's not what he's teaching. He's saying in the context of the church, God doesn't love men more than he loves women. And God doesn't love women more than he loves men. So as a church, he's invited us to look for every opportunity, every opportunity to push it, to look for every opportunity to value one another as men and women within the confines of Holy Scripture. And then there's diversity of preferences and beliefs. Diversity of preferences and beliefs. Romans 14, if there is any chapter that Bible Center needs this year, I believe it's Romans 14. I so sense the Spirit of God inviting us that if we could just get over this hurdle, get over this hump, get over this challenge, He only knows what He could do with us in the city. Romans 14.1 says this, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Let's put that in our modern vernacular. Some of you think it's wrong to mow your grass on Sunday. Some of you are like, well, hey, the Saturday was the Sabbath in the Old Testament, so I want to mow my grass on Sunday. I'm going to mow my grass on Sunday. You say, who's right? God says here in this verse, each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. I'm not coming down on that argument. I'm just saying each of us should be fully convinced in our own mind. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing 
judgment on one another. Healthy, secure, strong families are where we best learn to value unity amidst diversity. Not long ago, I had a conversation at a coffee shop with a dear brother that I love and thankful for. But during the conversation, this brother let me know why he was no longer going to be associated with Bible Center Church. And he said, Pastor, because I have this belief, I have this preference, you won't preach against it. I've never heard you preach against it. And if you won't preach against it, I'm taking my family and we're gone. And so I asked him, what is the preference? And he told me the preference. And I said, well, brother, you do know in the Bible, you can't prove that that preference is sin. You can't prove that. And I pulled out my Bible because I had a gut feeling it was going to go there. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Pastor, I don't want to discuss the Bible. I just want to discuss my preference. Christian, please hear me from the bottom of my heart. Let us never be a people who value our preferences above the Bible. I'm not telling you don't have preferences. That's what makes us unique. We all have preferences. That's what makes us even a little bit weird. I am just saying, please, 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 let us not be a church that says, my preferences are more important than the Bible, but let us be a place that says, look, I know what God's word says because of my background, because of my upbringing. These are my preferences, but I respect the authority of God's word more than I respect my tradition. If we get to that place, God only knows what kind of reputation we can have in this city. Because it's not about what we want. It's about what God says. There's a book I'd like to recommend, of course, under the Bible. Let me quickly say that. Um, it is called Befriend, Create Belonging in an Age of Judgment, Isolation, and Fear. Uh, our men's groups are going through this book now. Uh, on the back, it says they sell for $15.99. We're selling them for $10 out in the lobby. If there's any left after the first service, uh, I challenge you to pick it up. I want to read you some of the, the headings. The guy who wrote this was Tim Keller's right-hand man. If you're familiar with Tim Keller, he went down to Tennessee and is the pastor of a church there. I really respect him. Like all books, we don't agree with everything, but I would encourage you to pick up this book. Here's the chapter titles. Chapter 2, Befriend the One in the Mirror. That's how to be at home with yourself. It's important. Befriend prodigals and Pharisees, the wrecked and the reckless, the shamed and ashamed. Befriend true friends. Befriend your significant other. Befriend sexual minorities. Befriend dysfunctional family members. How to befriend children. How to befriend the grieving and the dying. How to befriend the poor. How to befriend people of other ethnicities. How to befriend the rich and powerful, bullies and perpetrators, vulnerable women and humans not yet born. How to befriend strangers and refugees. Here's one. How to befriend those who vote differently than you do. Just in case anybody needs that. How to befriend people with disabilities, people with special needs. And the last chapter is beautiful. How to befriend the God who embraces you. Church is not a building we go to. It's a family we belong to. It's so important. Why else should we believe that? Number three, because families take care of their own. Families take care of their own. Look with me at verse 20. 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty. 20. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. 
As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Number three, families take care of their own. In this particular Greek church, unfortunately, they weren't taking very good care of their own. They were letting their poor go hungry while the rich feasted in front of them. Now, a little context might help again about why they did this. Some of the problems they had were, were different than the problems we have, but they make sense when we can translate them. So the early church often celebrated communion around a meal. You say, why did they do that? Well, Jesus did that. Jesus, who started this tradition of communion for the church in the upper room in the Gospels, we find that Jesus got everybody together around a meal, his disciples. They enjoyed a big meal, and at the end of the meal, Jesus would, would uh, break the bread, he would hold up the cup, and they celebrated what now has become communion. And so the early church felt like they needed to do it just like Jesus did, which isn't a bad thing. They held a big meal, and then they would celebrate communion at the end. Well, the church at Corinth was so ornery, I guess you could say, a little bit persnickety. They, they, they weren't doing it right. They were having everybody bring their own picnic baskets to serve their own families. So the rich people, instead of sharing the food with one another, the rich folks were having these feasts, just gorging themselves, while the poor people in the church you know, had smaller picnic baskets, and they barely had enough to eat, if anything at all. So you can imagine, you know, these kids, their stomachs are growling, and they're looking at the people beside them with this huge feast, and it created just a lot of division, a lot of, a lot of I guess you could say, covetousness, to use an Old Testament word. And so Paul writes and he says, no, no, no. He says, you're a family. It's okay to have a meal around communion. He never forbid having a meal. He's just saying, if you come together with a meal, make sure you share food so nobody's hungry. It's kind of like potluck. Everybody brings food. Everybody gets the same amount. But if you can't do that, then come together for the word, for worship, and then celebrate communion after, which is why in the history of the church, it's becoming more and more common, at least in the Church of America, to do communion at the end of a worship service, not around a meal, because it can create a lot of problems. One day, maybe here at Bible Center, not maybe, we will one day have communion around a meal. It'd probably have to be like in the Civic Center or something, somewhere big with lots of tables, but it'd be a beautiful picture as long as you'd be sure to share with the person next to you. But the reputation of the church outside of Corinth was so different. The reputation of the early church was one of sharing. It was one of giving. Families took care of their own. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44 says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Families take care of their own. Those of you that have kids or grandkids going off to college this week, you can appreciate this story. I remember my second week of college. It was 1998. I just gone off to school. And I remember my truck broke down. My F-150 broke down. Now, you're not going to hear me say very often admitting to a Ford breaking down. Because it doesn't happen very much. But I think I had gotten too close to a Chevy that day and it had just you know, kind of rubbed off. My Ford broke down in a second week of college. 
There were no cell phones. At least I didn't have a cell phone. Some people had bag phones and car phones. I didn't have any cell phone. And so I was at BB&T. I was getting some money out. So I was able to coast into a parking spot at the bank. And next to the bank was a food lion. I went to school just outside of Charlotte, pulled into the, I ran over to the food line and I was going to put some quarters in this dinosaur thing called a payphone. Some of you maybe have never seen in your life, but I was going to call some guys at my dorm to come pick me up. Well, as I go over to the food line, I saw the chef, the head cook at our college who happened to be a Christian and his name was Mr. Dallas. I said, Mr. Dallas, it's so good to see you. I said, man, I, my truck just broke down. He said, hey, I'll give you a ride. Just walk around with me. I'll finish grocery shopping. And I'll never forget walking up and down the aisles of that food line with Mr. Dallas. Mr. Dallas talked. He said, Matt, at college, you're going you're gonna to learn a lot, get a lot of knowledge. You're going to be smarter after four years. He goes, but let me challenge you with something. I want you to learn two lessons while you're at college. More importantly than anything you learn in the classroom. Number one. I want you to learn to trust God. Just learn to trust God. Number two, learn to appreciate the global church. Learn to appreciate Christians caring for you even beyond what your physical family, who's no longer with you, even longer than they're able to care for you. Learn to appreciate brothers and sisters of Christ around the world. Mr. Dallas took me back to my dorm. Eventually my parents came and helped me fix the car, but some of the guys in my dorm got me where I needed to go. We want to be a church like that. If you're here this morning and you have a physical need, a tangible need, you're going without something. I'm not talking about Netflix and, and Apple TV. If you're doing without something, please let us know. If your children are doing without something, please let us know. One of the reasons God put us here primarily is to propagate the gospel. But one of the ways we can show the gospel is by caring for our own. We do not want you to do without. Contact us. Contact Pastor Richard. All of our emails are on the website. We'll keep it confidential. But we want to be a church that cares for our own. Because church is not a building we go to. It's a family we belong to. Why does God want us to believe this? Number four. And lastly, our biological family is temporary. But Jesus' family is eternal. Our biological family is temporary, but Jesus' family is eternal. Look with me at verse 23 through verse 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. We're going to come back to communion in a minute. We're going to talk about covenant for a second. The new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the point I want to make. Our biological family is temporary, but Jesus' family is eternal. When you put your faith in Christ, you became part of this new covenant. The Old Testament, thousands of years before Jesus, lets us know there's coming a day when, when God was going to give his people a new heart. And with that new heart, he was going to put his spirit inside of us. The moment we believe the gospel, we become part of God's covenant family. You see, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine. 
He was buried and he rose again the third day. And he offers salvation to everybody who repents and believes. We call this the gospel message. And when we believe the gospel, God not only saves us, the individual, but we're talking more and more here at Bible Center about how God is actually saving a people. And part of this people that God is saving, we call this, this people today the church. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, you are part of the covenant family. And Jesus had some very specific things to say about the covenant family. He said, your earthly family, your biological family is temporary, but your heavenly family is eternal. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 12. This is, this is, these are hard words to hear, but they're important words to believe. Matthew 12, verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whosoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do I love my biological family? Do I love my, my parents? Do I love my sister? Do I love my wife? Do I love my children more than I could ever express? The scriptures have much to say about that, but that's a different sermon. Does God invite us or does God tell us that in heaven we're going to, to know even as we are known? Are we going to know who our loved ones are? I believe without question the scriptures teach that, but that's for another sermon. The point I want to make is this. Our biological family is temporal. Jesus says there's an overarching family that is more important than the people we live with. And that is being a part of Jesus' family. Our biological family is temporary, but Jesus' family is eternal. We're part of a covenant family. Church is not a building we go to. It's a family we belong to. Now, in the last minute or two, what can we do? How can we put a message like this into practice this week? Well, it's simple. God invites us to celebrate communion. That's going to be our application today. We're going to celebrate communion. But let's ask the question, why does God want us to do this? Why celebrate communion? Yes, it's to remember the body and blood of Christ. But communion is so much more than just that one dimension. According to this passage, we celebrate communion to preserve the unity of our church family at all costs. We celebrate communion to preserve, to recommit to the unity of our family, our church family, at all costs. Have you ever seen a couple just renew their wedding vows, maybe on their 25th anniversary or their 50th wedding anniversary? It's a beautiful thing. Sarah and I have been married 19 years, and I can't wait until our, our 25th celebration. We're already putting together like this song track of all the songs, soundtrack, all the songs we wanted our 25th anniversary celebration. We look forward to renewing our vows at 25, renewing our vows at 50, should God grant us life that long. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. You know that communion, according to 1 Corinthians 11, one of the reasons we celebrate communion is that reason. You see, Paul knows this church struggles with their unity. So what does he tell them to do? He says, church, you struggle with your unity, take communion. 
There's something spiritual. There's something supernatural. When we gather together to partake of the bread and partake of the juice, God does something in us and reminds us it's almost as if we're recommitting to do whatever is necessary to lean in, to love in spite of our differences. Because it's not about us. It's about Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. With that in mind, it helps the rest of these verses make sense. Notice verse 27. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. He's just told them to take communion. The biggest issue this church wrestled with was disunity. So with that in mind, notice verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, when I was growing up in church camp, I was given like a thousand things about what this means. But I can never remember hearing anybody teach about disunity being the context of this warning. In context, it's disunity. He is saying, look, if you're out here blowing up the phone lines and you're blowing up social media and you're making a mess of things, believing rumors, always believing the worst, God says, be careful, do not take communion because you're a hypocrite if you do. He says, look, but, but this morning, maybe all of us fall in that category, and I think we do. You can repent. You can say, Lord, help me to fight again for the unity of your church because I don't want this to apply to me. I, don't, I know I don't. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. He didn't say everybody. He said, but there are some among you. This is the reason. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. That word together He's saying, when you come together to take communion, do it with the purpose of renewing your unity, renewing those vows before the Lord to keep the peace in the body of Christ. Let's celebrate communion as our commitment to preserve the unity of our church at all costs. Why should we do that? Because church is not a building we go to. It's a family we belong to. I'm going to ask our communion servers to prepare themselves to prepare for communion in the back. And as they head to the back, I'll ask you in a moment to take a few minutes to search your heart and examine yourselves. Where this week have you been tempted to break down the unity of the body of Christ? Where has this sin shown itself in your... The Lord's shown me some places. And I hope he'll show you some as well. As the communion servers are getting ready, let me just remind you that communion is a time for believers. And so if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, please just pass the tray on. We want your first communion to be significant to you, to mean a lot to you. And so if you're not yet a follower of Christ, just wait until you are. If this morning in your heart God has done something and you're like, look, I'm a believer in Jesus. And you want to take communion, you feel free to do that. If you have children who are with you in the service and they've not yet professed faith in Christ, it's okay 
to tell them no. My parents told me no. It bugged me when I was a kid. That's okay. But wait until they put their faith in Christ so it can be significant in their life. I'm going to invite the servers to join me at the front. A couple of things. As the trays are passed, there's a cup inside of a cup. And so you want to make sure you get both cups when you pull them out, the bread and the juice. And then if you'll wait and partake together, we'll all, once everybody has received theirs, we'll enjoy it at the same time. First the bread and then the juice. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on this important time. Father, we're a family. And over the next few minutes, as Pastor John sings and we have a moment to reflect, I pray that you will help us, dear Lord, to recommit to the unity of the church. Lord, we live in a culture of suspicion, a culture of thinking the worst before we think the best. We see it on social media. We see it on TV. God, help us not to play into that, but to give one another the benefit of the doubt and to love. Lord, help us to celebrate our differences. Lord, I'm so thankful this church doesn't look like me. And I pray that every person, man, woman, and child, would be thankful for the same thing. What a beautiful picture of diversity you're building here. And we want you to continue to do that. Bless this communion in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.